Welcome to the New Legal Realism Podcast. The New Legal Realism Project promotes rigorous and genuinely interdisciplinary scholarship on law in action. This is the fourth podcast in our series in which we're interviewing scholars who contributed to the two volumes on New Legal Realism, recently published by Cambridge University Press. On our previous podcast, we heard from Sally Engelmary, who co-edited the second volume on studying law globally and co-authored the introduction to that volume. Today, we'll hear from Stuart McCauley and Elizabeth Mertz, who co-edited the first volume, Translating Law and Society for Today's Legal Practice. Professor Mertz wrote the introduction, entitled New Legal Realism, Law and Social Science in the New Millennium, and Professor McCauley wrote a piece called A New Legal Realism, Elegant Models and the Messy Law in Action. Stuart McCauley is Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin Law School. He is internationally recognized as a leader in the law and action approach to contracts. He pioneered the study of business practices and the work of lawyers related to the questions of contract law. He is also one of the founders of the modern law and society movement. Professor McCauley has written extensively on subjects ranging from lawyers and consumer law to private government and legal pluralism. Elizabeth Mertz is Senior Research Faculty at the American Bar Foundation and Professor of Law at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Her scholarship focuses on the intersection of law and language analyzed from an anthropological perspective. Her study of first-year law school education in the book entitled The Language of Law School, Learning to Think Like a Lawyer, was co-winner of the Law and Society Association's Herbert Jacob Book Prize. Professor Mertz holds a JD as well as a PhD in anthropology and was elected a fellow of the American Anthropological Association. She has been editor of the Political and Legal Anthropology Review, in addition to serving for many years as editor of Law and Social Inquiry. She was a visiting fellow in Princeton's program in Law and Public Affairs during 2010 to 2011. Welcome. It's really wonderful to have both of you here today to interview both of you. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to mention for our listeners, I guess, that I had both of you as professors over 10 years ago now when I was a student at the University of Wisconsin Law School, um, and that the law in action approach to teaching, which is one of the hallmarks of Wisconsin Law School, was one of the main reasons I went there. And I recall that approach being especially prevalent in the courses I took from both of you. So, um, so it's really exciting to be interviewing both of you today and, and that that tradition really influenced and shaped my career going forward. So um, it's really on, an honor to talk to both of you. Um, so my first question is for Professor McCauley, um, and it is, uh, you were involved with the beginning of the law and society movement in the United States, um, and now with the launch of new legal realism. So I'm wondering, how do you see the two of them as being related, and why did you get involved in NLR? Well, uh, it seems to me that, that they're closely related. Uh, in, in a way, it's a, uh, NLR is a particular focus of the broader law and society thing. You could look at it that way. Uh, or you could say that they're the same thing. It doesn't matter much to me. The key thing uh, is that I'm interested in the way law works, what's going on out there. And uh, uh, 
all of these ways of trying to get uh, more people interested in that and giving us answers. I mean, we, we uh, you know, you, you can get all kinds of opinions, but, but uh, good scholarship on it, uh, that, that's what I, I want to push. Now, um, and, and I, I always think that uh, I, I was very lucky. Uh, I started teaching when I was 26 years old, and uh, my late wife, who uh, was very good at keeping her husband in line, uh, always said I was the boy wonder. It was a wonder they let a boy do a man's job. And I had very much the the, the sense that uh, uh, I didn't know uh, what was going on. Uh, I'd, I'd been a you know I'd, I'd gone to a good law school, been on the law review. I'd been a judge's law clerk. I was a teaching fellow at the University of Chicago, uh, and then bang, uh, I was teaching contracts. So I had very much a, a sense of uh, wanting to find out uh, what's going on out there, and, and didn't feel uh, I understood. I mean, law school and, and legal scholarship so much starts from uh, uh, reading appellate cases. Well, that's that's useful, but uh, uh, to understand any one of them, you need to know so much more. Professor Mertz, how did you get involved in NLR, and why has it interested you? Well, I, and Stuart and I were together at the beginning of this, along with a bunch of colleagues, um, our late colleague, Jane Larson, was uh, instrumental in getting us all motivated to try to do something on this area. She thought that the law schools, after having spent quite a bit of time developing expertise in law and economics, might someday turn to look outside of that to other social science disciplines. But she also thought that the social science disciplines would not be ready when that happened, that they don't tend to care that much about what's happening in law schools, that they would be unable to speak effectively to lawyers and law professors. And she was worried about that because if you miss out on most of the social sciences in your approach to studying law, something that the law and society movement has been trying to push us toward for quite some time, then you actually don't get a very good picture of what's going on out there, the way Stuart was saying. So um, in this case, um, you know, a bunch of people at Wisconsin, which has that approach, and at the American Bar Foundation, which also is very interested in fully interdisciplinary work on law, meaning, you, you know, you, you count things, you go and sit with people and watch them and do qualitative work in a structured way. You do experiments as psychologists, and then you all sit down together and try to figure out what the picture is. So Wisconsin ABF, but also Martha Feynman, who is at Emory, mm -hmm. David Wilkins, who's at Harvard, a number of us came together and started to try to plan for a new legal realism conference and then kept going from there. And over the years, we've accumulated lots of people doing really interesting things. Um, and so that keeps me interested to see a whole new generation of young people coming in now who are concerned about law, lawyers and law and law professors as an audience and want to figure out how to do a better job of getting across what the social sciences have to offer. 
Professor McCauley, you and Lawrence Friedman put together a book for professors who want to teach students from a law and society perspective. Can you tell us a little bit about that and when did that start and um, how has it evolved over the years? Uh, that started when uh, I was at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, <laughs> which is on the Stanford campus, and Lawrence was a visiting professor at Stanford. Um, we were both asked to teach a law and society course at Wisconsin. Uh, the person who had taught it left, and one uh, of the uh, uh, associate deans asked Lawrence to do it, and another of the associate deans asked me to do it, and so Lawrence and I decided we'd both do it. And, and we thought that would be very easy because uh, uh, Red Schwartz and Jerry Skolnick had uh, – uh, teaching materials. Well, we asked them, could we use them? Oh, no, because they weren't in shape. They didn't want others to, to look at them without a lot of editing. And Lawrence being Lawrence, he said, well, we'll just do it ourselves. So um, we went to the Mandarin Restaurant in Menlo Park once a week <laughs> and assigned <laughs> each other things. And, of course, in the first edition, uh, there wasn't there wasn't that much by the time we got to the fourth edition, uh, the game was quite the other way around. It was uh, picking out of lots of things you could use. So uh, it was very nice that way. It was a lucky accident, and uh, I was delighted uh, uh, that Lawrence and I and, – and when we both came back to Madison, he went back to Stanford, uh, sadly. But uh, uh, when we both came back to Madison, we taught the course together, and uh, – uh, work from there, uh, and and so much of it was to try to just uh, pull together and uh, raise raise some questions about uh, what is going on. That is, uh, what kind of a picture of the legal system would you get? Uh, uh, why do laws work or not work? Uh, what are the roles of the various actors and people who play? One of the things that always I found surprising was this odd little course called Law and Society was the one place we started looking about what is it that lawyers do? I mean, you think you have law schools all over the place, uh, but actually looking at what is it that lawyers do? And, and uh, obviously the, the small town practitioner and the Wall Street lawyer in some sense are in the same profession, but in other sense they're doing very different things. So uh, trying to get some feeling and sense for that so uh, that 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 was the the backgrounds and how we f fell into it, um, and uh, I I was very lucky. I taught it with Lawrence to start with, and then uh, after he left, I taught it with Jack Ledinsky, who was a sociologist. And after Jack uh, no longer could uh, continue teaching with me because because of other demands on his time, um, I taught it with Howard Erlanger. Uh, before Howie went to law school and became a law professor. So uh, uh, I, I, I had the, it was quite an education. I also had a wife who was a social psychologist, and so and she tended to edit everything. So uh, I had a lot of help. And in fact, well, I had the pleasure of co-teaching that with Stuart um, right before I went emeritus at Wisconsin. So um, it was a real treat. You, you covered just everything you, under the sun from policing to East German judges to the culture of law in 
average United States towns and um, everything in between. And uh, I used to uh, offer an option. You could take an exam or you could write a paper. And uh, mm -hmm. people who wrote papers taught me so much. I mean, because you, you students would draw on, on their particular access to some piece of the thing. And uh, uh, you, you just found all kinds of fascinating stuff that you wouldn't have even thought about uh, uh, before mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I didn't have the access uh, that, that somebody who had done a clerkship uh, one summer, somebody who uh, uh, whose family was involved in something in uh, their their own mid-sized mid town. Uh, so uh, that that was, I think, one of the grand things that uh, happened that uh, uh, I hope I educated the students, but they educated me. So um, this is a question for either of you or both of you. Um, what is new legal realist teaching as it is happening today? Uh, so where are you seeing this? Where is it being implemented? And what needs to happen to further disseminate that approach and integrate it into legal education across the country? Well, what a great segue from teaching law and society topics in law schools to integrating it into the curriculum in other ways as well. So um, I would say that today there are people who are part of the law and society movement doing what we think of as medieval realist teaching all over the country because they're integrating social science and social perspectives into their teaching of law, not just anecdotally like, oh, I, I can tell you a story about this, in the real world, but actually using studies and research that tell you how this law works out in the real world. Um, and a, there are a significant number of clinicians in law schools who, um, in fact, in our legal realism book, we, we have, we lead off with some examples, but people who are the people teaching law students how they'll practice, how the things they need to know about practicing law. And not surprisingly, those people are also very interested in finding out what we can learn from social science about the practice of law, about the subjects that they're teaching their students about. And some of them are doing their own empirical research, and many of them are incorporating social science in the way new legal realism advocates um, into their teaching. So what I would say, and I'll, I'll let Stuart talk a little too, is that there already was a quiet little base all over the country of people doing this. And now I think we're going to start seeing more and more as there are more people with both JDs and PhDs going into teaching law. But uh, what, what do you think, Stuart? Well, I think that's true. One of the small steps but I think quite important one is we have uh, a number of people who have done studies of particular cases that are important in contracts or torts or criminal law. And, you know, what, what really was going on here? What was the problem and what was the consequence? You know, you, know, you read this appellate opinion and then what happened? That's the interesting thing. And the, the, the sort of focus on it. There are two collections of things in contracts, uh, and I know there's one in torts, uh, that is books of taking these uh, cases. And it really changes 
what what you can say about the the the, the case, uh, the problem, the legal system when you start seeing uh, what happens. So often, for example, uh, you you go through all this long battle, and uh, so all right, the uh, motion for summary judgment is denied, and then what happens? And of course that. Mm-hmm. When I went to law school, nobody ever even raised that as a question. But uh, uh, you you can learn a lot about the system when you when you do this this sort of thing. And then there's just the question, and I think we're we're, we're starting to see more of this: is what do you teach? And it's not so much that that we throw out all the traditional stuff because the traditional stuff is the tradition, and uh, people have to take bar exams, and people have to c- convince. Uh, other lawyers to hire them, and you at least have to know the uh, the sound like a lawyer. So, that, so there's a reason for that. But how much? Uh, what's what's the balance? What's the emphasis? What do we do? And um, uh, it's just uh, I think terribly important that uh, uh, people can apply these kinds of things. And those are steps I think any law professor. You don't have to turn yourself into a social scientist. Uh, to uh, make use of this sort of thing or to do some of it. Right. I do think you need to keep up on the literature because too often we fall back on old information or our own stereotypes of what's happening in the legal system may be based on stories people have told us or experiences we've had. And and when people do that in law school classrooms, they can actuate you know, inaccurate ideas about how effective certain laws are or ineffective they are, what their impact is. Um, one of the Law and Society colleagues that I, uh, many of them I, that I admire, um, Jennifer Robinolt, is a social psychologist and a law professor, asks her students to think about what empirical assumptions lie behind different doctrinal opinions and different doctrinal um decisions, because more often than not, behind them is an assumption about what a social problem looks like or what would help in remedy. And it would be very important for the people who make those decisions and the people who train the folks who wind up making those decisions to know how to judge the information that's out there and how to keep up to date on it. And how to be cautious in making those sorts of assumptions so that they don't push the legal system into directions that um, are not useful or are, in fact, counterproductive. Well, and one thing I think that if you're, if you're talking about what law and society has taught us, one important thing is that people cope with the law. They don't mindlessly just comply, and there are lots of ways of deflecting it and so forth. And uh, that's one of the things contract turns out to be f- <laughs> to serve, not always uh, in, in happy ways, but uh, somebody dreamed up arbitration clauses, somebody dreamed up non-disclosure uh, clauses, non-compete clauses. There are all kinds of ways to offset uh, various bodies of law. And uh, this is the sort of perspective I think you have to have to... to understand what lawyers do, and to understand how the system is working. And I would add to that, too, that where new legal realism takes off a little bit from law and society is just that because it's concerned so much with the law and with law professors and lawyers as an audience, 
Um, they are very careful. I would say new legal realism itself is very careful to take account of the things that are important to lawyers, which includes doctrine, and which may be too often social scientists just poo-poo because they think that, oh, well, we really know it's the politics of the judge or we think that it's, you know, who had the, um, you know, who, who got to the court first or something like that that determined the outcome here. Um, but in fact, doctrine is part of the language that people work through when they are working in courts and working with lawyers. So it's important not just to get a job, but to keep your job and to keep arguing to judges and to keep informing your clients about what they can and can't expect to take the doctrine seriously. So I would say that's maybe a step. New legal realism is um, just a little ahead of law and society on, although I think law and society is catching up on that as well. But law and society is more focused, I think, on the social science of law and maybe less on how do we translate that to the people who are actually practicing and using law. Professor McCauley, your work on relational contracts could be said to be one of the few successful translations of a sociological perspective into doctrinal scholarship. Would you agree that it does that? Um, and if so, how does it succeed in getting doctrinal scholars interested in a more social perspective on legal problems? Well, I don't know. I think there's a lot in, say, criminal law that would be, you could argue, is, is successful. So I don't, I don't want to claim the being unique, but uh, I think one of the reasons that, that it's successful is that uh, uh, in all kinds of theories, we assign contract law uh, certain functions and certain roles. And uh, when you start looking at uh, how transaction planning lawyers actually structure things, um, the classic assumptions about contract law are uh, at best part true. And uh, I think that this is uh, sort of uh, where, where we come from. And, and, and contract is one of the important concepts, you know, individual rights and, and uh, uh, sort of my, my freedom to not be bound unless I've made a choice, all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, how does it work out if you're an employee? Uh, how does it – and uh, we pass statutes that are supposed to protect employees and their contracts. Well, how do the, do the Walmarts and the uh, uh, various kinds of uh, pizza delivery places, how do they cope with all of this? Well, uh, I think those are questions that uh, uh, professors teaching contracts uh, – uh, at least seem to have said, well, this is some of what we should be de dealing with. Now, uh, I think I, I, w I think we're partially successful. <laughs> um, well, and I, still an I awful lot of being, sorry. I think Stuart's being too too modest in a way, but because like, the other move that I think is really uh, brilliant in relational contracts is that it takes a concept that forces you to look to social context in a, right, in a, a right. structured and regular way and puts it into the doctrine. So now all of a sudden there's a theoretical and doctrinal approach, which in fact, you know, goes back to Llewellyn in the UCC, who I, I think it was really pushing that in formulating legal doctrine to look at the relationship, to look at um, aspects of the course of dealing or aspects of the, the relationship that had formed 
in making decisions when people wind up suing each other. And the when I fell down the rabbit hole to this um, way back when I was, I guess I just turned associate professor, um, my uh, late father-in-law was the former general manager of S.C. Johnson and Sons, a worldwide corporation and, and such, and he wanted to know about what I uh, uh, was teaching, and I told him about Lon Fuller, the great legal realist uh, notions about uh, the interests protected by contract law. And one was uh, the so-called expectation interest, putting you where you would have been had the contract been performed. My father-in-law exploded. If you have to go talk to lawyers, you will not be where you would have been had the contract been performed. And then he told two stories that uh, uh, I guess have become kind of the foundation of my career in, in, in this. And uh, he, he pointed out that during the Great Depression, there were three firms that made the containers that Johnson's uh, floor wax and uh, counter polish and all that kind of stuff went into. And uh, they could have uh, had them bid against each other and sort of have a spiral to the bottom. Instead, they asked uh, and, and figured out which one needed the order from Johnson's most so they'd stay in business. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and he made the point, but are we talking short-term uh, advantage or long-term uh, advantage? And then uh, pointed out that five years after this, we were in World War II, and the ration and, and products made out of steel were rationed, and uh, Johnson never had any problem getting the, the cans it needed uh, simply because the, the, the suppliers owed us one, as he put it. <laughs> In other words, long-term continued relationships versus uh, individual contracts uh, with short-term advantage. Well, mm -hmm. I, I went on from there. <laughs> so uh, this is a question for either of you. Um, what are the challenges facing scholars who want to integrate law and social science? Where do we start? Um, yeah. anyone, <laughs> anyone who's tried that knows that they're very different worlds. So um, what people care about and do in law schools and what they care about and do in social science departments, on average, tends to be quite different. The cultures are different. What you need to do to get tenure is different. How you talk about things is different. I mean, I think most law-trained people think that social scientists can get pretty boring because they're always hedging and they want to be sure they get things accurately and they may not come out with a yes or no answer at the end of a study. Mm -hmm. And from the social science point of view, lawyers are just so crude and they always need a yes or no answer and they seem to want to cut to the chase rather than care about the details. So... Getting these guys in the same room, getting them to talk to each other in a way where they actually communicate and actually can be useful to each other is difficult. And I think some of the people trapped most in that situation are the people who come into the legal academy trained in social science and law mm -hmm. who are trying to find a way to put those two worlds together 
and they're going to have to do some damage to each, right? You can't do all the precision and all the caveats that you would do to be a good social scientist and still provide lawyers with something they can act on. And at the same point, the lawyers are going to have to sit still a little longer and listen to a little more of what's worrying the social scientists about coming down on one side or the other of this so that maybe they get a little more of the nuance. And one of the things that's also, uh, uh, I think, big problem is law is uh, one of the, those things that's very hard to study. Now, uh, you can talk about uh, one's sexual practices or one's religion. Things like that are hard to study, too. But there's an awful lot of, about law that's confidential. And you, you can't just line up a bunch of... Uh, of judges and say, I'm going to draw a random sample of judges and give them a questionnaire and expect to get replies. Uh, It's a big deal to to be able to go observe lawyers uh, uh, confer with their clients. I mean, getting in and being able to watch something like that is a is a miracle, and you won't get a random sample. You're anyone you that that lets you in the door. it's kind of a miracle. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you, you've got a whole series of problems like that. And uh, the data that comes out of uh, uh, reports of, say, the New York City Police Department, um, well, we've had a lot of uh, exposés of just, you know, how to, who codes what. And uh, the, the people who actually start doing the recording may have an agenda of making the police department look good or bad, and so do we want this rate going up or down? And uh, you can produce data that shows all kinds of things. If uh, uh, It's creative and fictional, but the idea that just because you get a table of numbers, that's what happened in the world. Uh, uh, that's... You have to get past that. Well, that's just part of the, the kind of difficulties that you you have to cope with. And I'm always for saying, uh, let's do the best we can, of course, and let's put the risks front and center on the table. But on the other hand, we, if you you can't have the conclusion, just throw up your hands and make it all up. <laughs> right. You need that, and that's I think where the social sciences. Well done, come in handy because that's what they've been coping with forever. And the qualitative sure. people are trained in how to observe in ways that don't overemphasize maybe one point over another and how to give you a real picture of what's happening on the ground. The quantitative people are trained in putting limits on what they can suppose from the statistics they generate based on the quality of the data and the completeness of the data or what might be missing, and that's a huge problem in quantitative work, the the idea that, well, something really important might just not be among the things we measured here. So good people are aware of the risks of their particular methods, and particularly when they work together, and then I think increasingly work with lawyers, law professors, people who are informed on law or become informed on law themselves, then they're in a really much better place to um, to judge the quality of the information that's coming in and make better choices on how to inform law uh, about what's going what's really going on, as Stuart likes to say. Yeah, and the other thing, of course, is that law changes, and so you 
you can do a wonderful study, and then the uh, they amended the statute, <laughs> and you have to right. Be- and that's a place I have to say where social scientists need lawyers, and uh, places like New Legal Realism Law Society give you a space where those folks can talk to each other and and make sure they yeah. know the statute changed or you know. Those are cases where the death penalty isn't applicable, so you shouldn't include them in your study of the death penalty. Or just legal, basic legal um, ideas that maybe a social scientist wouldn't pick up on right away. Right. Yeah, and it it seems like part of the solution to this might be the, the role of people who have advanced degrees in both the law and the social sciences. Um, and so, Professor Mertz, you have a law degree and you have a PhD in anthropology. So I'm curious about what you think about how how having both informs your work with NLR and your thoughts on the role of scholars with dual degrees in the translation process between the fields. Well, and I think we're entering an age where I'm very hopeful that there's a crowd of young scholars coming in I worry that we've raised the stakes so much. I don't think you should have to spend that many years getting that many degrees to be a law teacher. But the fact that some people have done that, and in fact some of them have practiced as well, gives you a new young version of a law professor who's very well placed to think about the study of law in a broad way, hopefully more friendly to multiple methods and multiple disciplines than maybe in the past so that we could get past uh, just one part of the elephant, you know, and have people from, you know, the old story about the blind men um, touching an elephant and telling you that it's quite different depending on what part they touch. Well, hopefully we can get more of us social scientists together and get a better picture of this elephant that's law. Um, and especially if we have people who also understand law and theory and law and practice. Now, the caveat to that is that, as with any institution, law schools change slowly. Um, what you have to do to get tenure and be a law professor is not conducive to doing that kind of work. And quite a few people in older generations came into the legal academy with PhDs as well as JDs and then wound up just going ahead and doing law professor work, maybe with a little added footnote here or there to the social science, but really just accepting a doctrinal framework. And I think the promise of having more of a critical mass of people who are willing to do interdisciplinary work of a a truly interdisciplinary variety with expertise in all of these um, areas is that they might be able to better figure out this translation problem that we've all been struggling with for quite a while, and I have to say, I mean, I went to, wound up at a law school that's very friendly to this problem at Wisconsin. There are a number of other schools around the country. I don't want to start naming them because I'll leave something out, but there are some places you can go where people are more friendly to doing the harder, long-term empirical work on law. Um, But now I think really a lot of schools are going to start opening up to this more and we have three different deans now of law schools who are actually authors contributing to the handbook on new legal realism um, that's coming out in a couple of years. Who are who are um, so they're both law school deans and they are receptive to empirical research um, at uh, University of Washington, 
and at Irvine, which is also turning into a real hotbed for interdisciplinary work um, of a certain kind, and also at Texas A&M. So if we have leading people in uh, a modern legal realist movement who are now in a position to help shape the cultures of law schools and shape the understandings people have about what you should do to get tenure, then maybe we're at opening a doorway where a new generation can answer this question better than we could. Professor McCauley, when you were a Bigelow Fellow at the University of Chicago, you encountered Carl Llewellyn, one of the leading old legal realists. Um, so I'm curious, how does the old legal realism connect with the new legal realism? Uh, I think the, in terms of what they talked about and uh, what they said ought to be done, uh, there's no discontinuity at all. I mean, they were uh, our, our grandfathers and uh, and great grandfathers were pretty smart people. But and grandmothers, because uh, we have to remember Zoya <laughs> Menchikov and. Well, um, all right. I guess I guess uh, using the concept of grandmother and Zoya Menchikov, <laughs> that's a very difficult one. <laughs> <laughs> because all of the going into that, we'll we'll, we'll stop on on that particular one. But one thing was that they they didn't do much of this, and I had fun. I wrote an introduction for a reprint of Llewellyn's book called The Bramble Bush, which is uh, uh, materials he put together to introduce law students uh, to what law school was about, and uh, it's 80 years old. And uh, here somebody wanted to put it out. Well, I went through in the passages, and he recognizes there's all kinds of stuff that we ought to study. But then he, at one point he comes down and says, but it's so much easier because the West Publishing Company sends us reprints of the opinions of the courts, and that's what we work off of. And, you know, it's <laughs> – he, he saw the problems, but the, doing it, and again, um, uh, the social sciences, of course, have developed tremendously as compared to sort of Llewellyn's day in the early 30s and the, these kinds of things. And uh, uh, a, a lot has changed under those those things. So I think that that the idea of law as delivered, uh, you can go back to Roscoe Pound in the 1920s of talking about that, but getting some good information of, well, what was law like as delivered, uh, things like that, they just didn't have it, and uh, it really took took a, a lot. I, I, I think it's fascinating that with all the talk of realism starting really First World War or, or maybe even before that, um, you, you don't really get the jury as something that anybody spends any time on until after World War II. That's the big University of Chicago Law School project on the jury. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it's a big part of the system, but it was just, uh, oh, the jury will find. Well, what does that mean? Uh, are we playing games? Uh, do instructions matter? Does jur can jurors do more than just give uh, uh, sort of, impressionistic kinds of things that they actually apply the rules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, uh, you know, it was quite late in the day when this comes forward. Um, so I, I, I just think that, uh, that 
they saw the problem. Um, I'm very sympathetic because doing something about it, it, it's expensive, it's difficult, and uh, they didn't have a lot of support for taking the risks of uh, doing all that work and what would they find, would it be publishable, and so on. Uh, and yet, you but, know, it's funny, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, and, and yet there's a line that runs from uh, Llewellyn and Diane um, Menshikoff's interest in um, you know, both reforming the legal system and taking account of how law works on the ground and support at the University of Chicago for various empirical legal research projects. At the time you're talking about, the Calvin and Zeisel work on the jury to Sherry Diamond working on the jury to this day um, coming out of that tradition. And so that's, uh, I think it's really wonderful the way Stuart's describing it is they had the interest, they wanted to do it, they had limited resources, it took a long time to get. I, you know, I think it's also fair to say that Hobo and Llewellyn's work um, on the Cheyenne dance um, as a legitimate study that was done at the time. So, you know, they started to plant those seeds and then slowly, slowly over a long, long period of time, we're seeing that Mon Society picked up on that in different ways. Um, other strands have been picked up on and now hopefully new realism will help to carry that forward into a time when we can really do the work, as you were saying, in a more concerted way um, that they envisioned. I I just remember, and it, it, it's uh, Mark Galanter and I were walking home. Uh, oh, now this is 20 years ago or so, and uh, we were talking about our experience. I went to Stanford, which at least uh, uh, charged as if it was an elite law school. Uh, <laughs> he 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 went to the University of Pennsylvania his first year, and then the University of Chicago for the second and third year. And the two of us remarked, and, and the, we were asking the question, did anyone mention plea bargaining or settlement of tort lawsuits your entire time in law school? And here we had three uh, expensive elite law schools, and the answer was no. This is the, you know, we were law students in the early 1950s. Well, that's, uh, you know, I, I think that, that today you, you – be a very few law schools that wouldn't at least mention there was a thing called plea bargaining if they were dealing with criminal law. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so for either of you to answer, um, what would you say makes new legal realism new? Um, and how do you both see the future of NLR unfolding? Well, if it, if it goes the way we would hope, um, there's, uh, as I said, a new generation poised to pick this challenge up and carry it forward in a way that could combine practice and reform with really uh, well-done empirical work that gives us better guidance about how to do that reform work. Um, reform is not a, a word that's welcome in a lot of old law and society circles for good reason, because legal reform often went wrong. Um, but I think the new generation is willing to take some of the risks that go with engagement and that they would like to help people who want to do better 
with law. Um, figure those ways out with better information. So, but it's exciting to me because they come to this with a real sophistication about what the problems are, and um, you know they're they're willing to live with the ambiguities that come with trying to fit between these two very different worlds of law and social science and do a better job of, of just pushing forward that conversation. And I think it could have important consequences. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, April. I really appreciate, as one of the younger generation, all the work you're doing. Yes, thanks very much. I'd like to thank Francis Tung and the many researchers who are collaborating on this new Legal Realism project and for working to make this podcast happen. Visit NLR at www.newlegalrealism.org or on the blog at newlegalrealism.wordpress.com where new legal realists post on everything from law to the latest in jazz. You can also email us at newlegalrealism at gmail.com so if you have any interview questions that you would like to submit to us as we move through interviewing the various authors of the recent volumes, please feel free to do so. This is April Faith Slaker with the New Legal Realism Project. Thanks for listening.